Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you reach a certain level of fame, you can expect that everything you do will be recorded somewhere. This is out of your control. Fans are going to do it. Your management team will do it. Your social media people will make sure it gets done. Probably somebody at your label. They'll just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And your life becomes one ever-expanding Wikipedia page. Not that this is a bad thing. It's just something that certain famous people have to live with. This brings me to Dave Grohl. He is one of the best documented guys in music. Everything he does and continues to do is written down somewhere. There are the Foo Fighters, of course. We know a lot about Dave and the Foos. There was his time in Nirvana before that. A little bit has been written about them. There are the side projects, the guest appearances, the documentary work, the soundtracks. We've even been introduced to his mom, who wrote a book about raising rock stars. So seriously, with all this attention, what else is left to tell? Well, you might be surprised. This is part two of a program I call Ultra Deep Background on Dave Grohl. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. That's a recording from 1994, October of that year, a demo made by Dave Grohl playing all the instruments and getting help from his friend Barrett Jones at a small studio in Seattle. They recorded 16 songs, some of which would be later fleshed out and re-recorded as proper Foo Fighter songs, and the others were discarded and tossed away forever. None of that material was ever supposed to be released. But, like I said, nothing that Dave has ever done seems to disappear. Those 16 songs ended up on an unofficial CD, that's a really kind word for bootleg, that was released in Japan in 1995, not long after the first official Foos album hit the stores. And we'll get back to those sessions in just a bit. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is part two of a super deep dive into Dave Grohl's career. And yeah, we could recite all the usual stuff about him, you know, the standard career retrospective. But if you're listening to this program, you're probably expecting something more. And I'm here to oblige. I've got a list of a bunch of things about Dave that aren't that well known. We'll pick up where we left off with item number eight in this dossier. Dave quit school at age 17 to join a DC band called Scream. He was still with them in the summer of 1990 when he recorded some new demos on his own. With help from his buddy Barrett Jones and a guy named Toss Neuenhuisen, 
from a Dutch band called God, who had toured with Scream, Dave created a new alias he called Harlingtalk's Angel Divine, or Harlingtalk's AD for short. Now, there never was a Harlingtalk's show, and Dave never really expected these experiments to go anywhere. But he had time, he had Barrett and a studio, so why not? There are some weird song titles here. Recycled Children Never to be Grown, and Treason Daddy Brother and Crime Real Patriotic-like stuff, which makes no sense. So, I guess if we're going to be complete about this, we need to hear some Harling Talks AD. This is called Orbiting Prisons in Space. I can't help thanking you, I never thank you. You stick your apples up in the air underneath the ski lights. And when that's what the radar would die from, we'd smack them down to the ground with shovels. The Dave Grohl solo project from 1990 called Harling Talks AD, which actually sounds more like Megadeth than Foo Fighters, which leads to item number nine in our dossier. A few months after those songs were recorded, Dave got the call to come up and audition for Nirvana. Scream had broken up over some girlfriend troubles while the band was on tour, leaving Dave stranded in Los Angeles. But then Buzz Osborne of the Melvins, a guy idolized by Kurt Cobain, recommended him for the open drummer slot with Nirvana. Dave packed his kit into a large cardboard box and boarded a flight for Seattle, arriving on Friday, September 21st, 1990. Kurt and Chris picked him up at the airport and drove to Chris' place where Dave was going to stay. After hanging out and auditioning, Dave just kind of became a member of the band. No one said anything like, congratulations, you're in the group. They just didn't ask him to leave, so he stayed. Dave's first official gig with Nirvana happened at the North Shore Surf Club in Olympia, Washington on October 11th, 1990. Dave was so excited that the band had sold out the 300-person venue that the first thing he did was call his mom. Dave played so hard that night that he broke his snare drum. Nirvana played so loud that they blew out the power three times. And God bless the internet, we have audio from that night. This is Dave Grohl's first show with Nirvana, performing Love Buzz, the band's first ever single. A little audio archaeology, recorded on October 11th, 1990, that is Nirvana's first ever show with Dave Grohl on drums. Moving on with our Dave Grohl dossier, item number 10 on our list of deep background facts on Dave has to do with what happened when Nirvana signed their major label deal with DGC Records. That initially created a big legal problem for Dave. At some point during his time with Scream, he signed some kind of agreement that said he was part of the band. When he joined Nirvana and they were signed to DGC, Dave was immediately sued by someone associated with Scream for $40,000, saying that he was still under contract to them, even though Scream had long broken up. Fortunately, at that point, Dave had some lawyers, and they dealt with that sort of thing. Item number 11, one of the most collectible cassettes out there. In other words, a tape that people are willing to pay big dollars for is from a band called Late. A copy of an album called Pocket Watch in Good Condition trades for $700 or more, this, in fact, was a solo album from Dave Grohl. He recorded four songs in December 1990, just a few months after he joined Nirvana, and the rest, another six songs or so, were hammered out over two days in July of 1991, about two months before Nevermind was released. 
When it came out in 1992, it appeared on a cheapo label called Simple Machines, run out of a house in Arlington, Virginia, by two people in a band called Tsunami. The company was an experiment. The idea was to only release material on cassette. And rather than press up expensive CDs and vinyl editions, they would just dub off new cassettes as the market demanded, usually five at a time. And this way, they reasoned, their releases would never be out of print. One of the people running Simple Machines was Jenny Toomey. Dave had a huge crush on her, which might be the only reason he agreed to let her label put out that cassette. If you look at the liner notes of Pocket Watch, you'll see that all performances on all instruments are credited to one Dave G. The album didn't get much attention, mostly due to Dave's insistence. See, when Nirvana started to take off, he didn't want to be seen as crashing the party with his own stuff. That would have been rude. So the late project was kind of buried and forgotten, even though Simple Machines begged him to let them put it out on CD. This is very worthy of study. The cassette features a song called Color Pictures of a Marigold. That track would later turn up as a track called Marigold on the CD single version of Nirvana's Heart Shaped Box. It is the only song in the whole Nirvana canon not written or sung by Kurt Cobain. Perhaps the best song on the album is called Friend of a Friend. Dave wrote this in Olympia, Washington while sitting on Kurt's couch. It's about the friendship he saw Kurt had with Chris. The song would later turn up in a re-recorded version on the acoustic portion of the In Your Honor album in 2005. But let's have a listen to the original. This is Dave performing as Late from 1992. Solo Dave Grohl from 1992, performing under the name Late. And again, if you find a copy of that cassette-only release, expect to pay about $700 for it. When we come back, a little more on Dave with Nirvana as we continue this ultra-deep background check. Hang on. This episode is called Ultra Deep Background on Dave Grohl Part 2, which uh, I think pretty much speaks for itself. Dave's overall story is very well known, but I'm more interested in the things that may have escaped your attention until now. This is item number 12. In the spring of 1992, after the Nevermind album had become the biggest thing in the world, Kurt Cobain decided he wanted to rewrite the band's royalty arrangements. He wanted everything changed. No longer would things be split evenly amongst the three members. Kurt demanded 90% of the songwriting royalties backdated to the release of Nevermind in September of 1991. Things got really heated, especially when Kurt called Dave and Chris greedy for wanting a bigger cut. After a bunch of fights, Kurt was bargained down to 75%. Of all the material on Nevermind, Kurt shares the songwriting just twice. Territorial Pissings is shared with Chet Powers of the band Quicksilver Messenger Service. The reason is the yelping at the beginning of the song, which are lyrics from the song Get Together by the Youngbloods, a song written by Powers. The other song that everyone shares is this one, which, come to think of it, if you had a piece of just one song on Nevermind, this is the one you'd probably want. I think we've established by now that Dave had a lot of music and musical ability inside him. So why wasn't he used more while he was in Nirvana? 
This is item number 13 in our dossier of little known Dave Grohl facts. There were two reasons for this. First of all, Nirvana was Kurt's band. He was the leader, he was the singer, he was the songwriter. Dave knew that he stumbled into a lottery win and wasn't about to mess with the situation. Second, Dave didn't really think he was any good. He didn't like his singing voice, and he didn't think he was any good as a songwriter. Everything we've heard from Dave up until now in these shows was essentially recorded in secret, and he only let select people hear that material. He thought they were all substandard. But there is that one time towards the very end of the sessions that would become the In Utero album, and this would be about February 1992, Kurt and Chris left the studio and let Dave mess around. Now, remember how I mentioned that song called Pictures of a Marigold? He took this break in the sessions to record a new version in which he sings, plays drums, and guitar. Chris would later add the final bass line. The song did not make In Utero. Kurt would have never allowed that. But it did show up as the last song in the CD single of Heart Shaped Box. In other words, it was buried. Some people, however, did take notice. It was later issued as part of the box set called With the Lights Out, and the Foo Fighters have performed it live. In fact, you can find it on the live Skin and Bones album, which came out in 2006. Here is the heart-shaped box version. It's a hint of the day roll to come. The only Dave Grohl song that ever made it with Nirvana. That's Marigold from the Heart Shaped Box CD single and recorded during the sessions that resulted in the In Utero album. We're now up to dossier item number 14. This is from a period after Nirvana and before the Foo Fighters. When Kurt died in April 1994, Dave went into a deep depression. He had no idea what he was going to do. Giving up music actually was an option for a while. Joining another band was another. Both Danzig and Tom Petty had extended invitations. But he knew this. He didn't want to be just a drummer. There's nothing wrong with playing the drums. But he knew this. He didn't want to be just a drummer. And that's because he knew that every time he sat down behind the drums, he'd be reminded of his time in Nirvana. And he couldn't take that at the time. But he couldn't sit still. The first time Dave played after Nirvana was with the Backbeat Band, a fictional group from a Tom Hanks movie. This was at the 1994 MTV Movie Awards. After that, he agreed to help punk bass player Mike Watt with one of his solo albums, which was called Ball Hog or Tugboat. This project included members of Sonic Youth, Black Flag, Jane's Addiction, and Dinosaur Jr. Eddie Vedder contributed, as did Flea from the Chili Peppers, Evan Dando from the Lemonheads, as well as Mike D and Adrock from the Beastie Boys. Dave had a lot of fun with this record on which he played drums and guitar. This is the kind of stuff that got Dave excited about music again. He's playing drums on this track from the Mike Watt album. Mike Watt from his 1995 album Ball Hog or Tugboat, parts of which featured Dave Grohl, including that track, which is called Big Train. That's Dave on drums there. This is what encouraged Dave to try creating his own band. And we will finally pick up the Foo Fighters part of this series next. This is the second part of a show digging into the deep background of Dave Grohl. The basics of his story have been told countless times. And I'm more interested in the stuff that we haven't been told or have been underreported. 
We can now start with the Foo Fighters chapter of Dave's career. This is item number 15, the pre-Foo Fighters Dave Grohl demos. At the beginning of this show, we heard a demo Dave recorded as he was gearing up to do something post-Nirvana. We didn't know what, but he was going to do something. Like I said earlier, Dave seriously considered getting out of music entirely because Kurt's suicide hurt so much. But the deciding factor of what to do next seemed to have been a postcard that he got from fellow Seattle band Seven Year Bitch. In 1992, one of their members OD'd and died. And then in 1993, another member was kidnapped, raped, and murdered. Rather than packing it in, Seven Year Bitch stuck together and continued to make music. This was the message of the postcard. It read, We know what you're going through. The desire to play music is gone for now, but it will return. Don't worry. This convinced Dave that he needed to keep going. He was put on this planet to make music, and to stop it would be just wrong. So he booked some studio time at a studio in Seattle with his old buddy Bear Jones. And on October 17, 1994, they set to work. The whole demo project took about six days with Dave playing all the instruments. He'd do his drum part and then run into the control room to grab his guitar. And after that was done, he'd move on to something else. Most songs were knocked off in between 40 and 45 minutes per that's how long it took for this track to get finished. Dave Grohl playing everything himself on the pre-Foo Fighters demo from the fall of 1994. What you also need to know was that Dave had no intention of pursuing a record contract with these sessions. His only purpose, his sole purpose, was to prove to himself that he could do it, that he could still make music. The copies of these sessions were pressed up on vinyl, just a hundred copies, and distributed amongst friends. Imagine how much those things must go for now. There were also some ultra-rare cassettes featuring rough mixes of 15 songs, like, uh, oh, well, like this. close to the final version, isn't it? The demo version of Alone and Easy Target, recorded again about 40 minutes in October 1994. Among the people who got copies of these sessions, either on vinyl or cassette, were Chris Novoselic, Nirvana's tour manager, and a couple of record company confidants. Of course, these sessions were immediately bootlegged, which leads me to item number 16. People loved this tape, and Dave was besieged with offers. But Dave wasn't going to rush into anything. He remembered what it was like with the royalty issue with Nirvana. He dealt with enough record weasels to know that he had to protect himself. Dave was determined to retain ownership of his music. You want to do business with me? Well, you're going to have to go through my own record company, which I have set up to protect my interests. Dave's label was called Roswell Records. Roswell, taken from the name of the town in New Mexico that was allegedly the site of the infamous UFO crash in 1947. He called his project Foo Fighters, after a term used by World War II pilots to describe mysterious balls of fire over Allied lines. The French word for fire is feu, F-E-U, and these pilots were sent up to fight the foo. Ergo, 
Foo Fighters. Now, Dave could have called the project after himself, but he preferred cloaking everything as if it were an unknown band from Seattle, even though there was actually no band at the time. There was just Dave. By the way, Dave thinks the name Foo Fighters is dumb. Again, this whole project wasn't supposed to succeed, but now he's stuck with the name. Here's Dave on the subject. Well, for a long time, I mean, since I was a kid, I'd always been really fascinated with UFOs and lie out in my front yard and wait for one to come down at night. I had these crazy UFO dreams and and uh, loved science fiction and space gun toys and action figures and stuff like that. So I've always really been to, been into science fiction and the whole UFO thing. And, you know, now there's... Well, I was reading this book called Above Top Secret at the time, and and uh, it was just another UFO sort of sightings account kind of book. And uh, I was reading about Foo Fighters, which were these glowing balls that were chased around by, I think it was the Royal Air Force during World War II. And um, just another slang term for UFOs. And at the time I was doing this tape, I thought, you know, I wanted to release this, this, the first record without anyone's name on it, call it Foo Fighters so people would think it was actually a band, have it be totally anonymous. And, and I've always loved bands that had names like the Ramones or the Pixies or, you know, the Bangles, I don't know, just it seemed like a group of people. And, and uh, I thought Foo Fighters was pretty hilarious. So, and Roswell, I mean, everybody knows what Roswell is. So it just sort of like went along. But then it seemed like everybody, you know, I started getting so many UFO questions, people really thought that I was of the Heaven's Gate cult or something, you know. Here's one more from that rough mixtape. We're at the end of part two of a multi-part dig into Dave Grohl's background, and it's taken us this long just to get to the point where the Foo Fighters are about to become a thing, which is to say the end of 1994 and the beginning of 1995. We'll wrap things up with part three next time as we go through some of the lesser-known items in the world of Foo. Until then, check my website for more information about music. I update it every day, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. There's a newsletter that comes with it. You can sign up for that for free. And I can also be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can always email me too at alan and alancross.ca. More on Dave Grohl next time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 